0: Hello and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth and postpartum journey while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host Dr Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife and I'm joined weekly by my co-host B from Core and Flora Store and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. And we'll kick off. All right. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. If you heard last week's episode, you'll know that this episode is the next set from last week's episode. So I think they'll be nice to listen to together. And you'll also know that this is our last episode for this year for 2023. And we'll start up again next year in January 2024. You'll be okay without us. 100%, 100%. You were okay before you met us, and you'll be okay for just one month without us. I don't think we'll be okay without our weekly check ins. <laughs> well, we will be still checking in because B and <laughs> I are going to make a very strong attempt to actually get ahead on podcast episodes. Oh, you've committed now. You've, you've live told them live air. Well, now we're going to. There's a lot at stake. My assistant um, who helps me get this podcast out. Uh, is having a baby in January. and so uh, I have agreed and committed to making sure that all of the work she needs to do all through January and February is ready for her in December. So you all know, right, I'm on
1: board. if it's a woman needing need to have a baby, I'll do anything you to know
0: to <laughs> like this is how we're gonna midwife her is is make sure we've got our work together so that she can do hers and then have her baby. right. today. We have two guests, Kate and Liz, who I'm realising now are 100% identical twins. Is this right? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. Amazing. That's not got anything to do with our podcast today, but it just literally occurred to me as I was staring at you both together. Yep. So today we're talking about osteopathy in pregnancy and more specifically for the pelvic floor. But if we know anything about osteopathic work, you know, B and I talk about it all the time. It's a very holistic modality, and so I imagine you guys don't just work with the pelvic floor when you work with women.
2: We definitely don't just work on the pelvic floor. Um, just for example, if you've you've seen plenty of osteos, but if you come in for shoulder pain, you would be pretty disappointed if your osteopath just looked at your shoulder. They're looking at the neck, they're looking at the rib cage, they're looking at the pelvis might even be looking at your feet to help influence the shoulder. And it has always baffled me why, when it comes to the pelvic floor, people mainly just look at the pelvic floor. And if we can give that kind of respect and holistic approach to care, to the shoulder, then why the hell are we not doing it for the pelvic floor? And we should be doing it to the pelvic floor. So I guess for us, look at When someone comes in with an issue with their pelvic floor, it is a symptom and it could be a big part of the puzzle or it could be a minor piece of the puzzle and it's working out how much the pelvic floor is contributing to their whole story and how much stress is or the hips or the feet or their breathing mechanics and and so forth.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Why don't you guys start off introducing your work and what you have been doing in this space and then we're going to get into a whole lot of questions about this topic awesome I
2: will introduce us and I know that normally you don't have two guests two guests coming in and and probably doing an introduction for the two but as um, Mel mentioned we are identical twins so firstly if at the end of this you can't remember who said what my mum won't be able to tell the difference between our voices. If she listened to this podcast, she will not know who is talking. I don't think I, we I don't, would know, Kate. I don't think we would. If we
1: went back Could you through, know personality? Surely there's a slight Oh,
2: rain. yeah, we probably would know that. But I've left messages on Liz's, on my phone. Liz had my phone because she was from overseas at the time and came over. I gave her my mobile phone and I said, you have my mobile. Hers didn't work. I left her a message on my phone from the work phone. And when I got home, I went, oh. There's a message for me and I listen to it and I'm like oh Liz left me a message and I got halfway through the message before I realized it was me talking to Liz. Um all right so Liz I'm going to be so back on on the track but um I'm I'll introduce Liz and like I said you might not be able to tell us apart by our voices but we wear really similar hats because we've done all the same training. We graduated from osteopathy over 20 years ago, so we've been working with bodies for over 20 years. And um, our biggest, brightest hat is the fact that we're both mums and we've got a little tribe of girls between the two of us and I have a black furry dog. And I guess that's our biggest and most important hat that we wear. And about eight years ago, we delved into the world of pelvic health. We did a physio course in in Sydney and it was fantastic and it really sparked some fire in both of us and passion for this new field. Soon after that, we did um, an internal visceral course with a French osteopath and the problem was there was no more courses for us to do. That was it. We couldn't find any other courses in Australia that we could do. So, we had no mentors all we had was each other and and research papers so we were head into research we were reading research papers getting into anatomy books and anything that we could find to educate ourselves and then we were meeting like-minded people like b and doing any online in-person course that we could find to educate ourselves in the area of pelvic health and we're lucky enough to say, or I feel like I can, I can say that Liz and I are two of the most um, experienced pelvic health osteopaths in Australia, and we have done a lot of work to get there. And with that experience. We joined with another osteopath, Simone Ketty, who's also in Brisbane. So Liz is in Brisbane and she has two clinics in Brisbane and I'm in Melbourne and I have two clinics down here. And we joined together to create the Osteopathic Pelvic Health Institute of Australia. And it is the first time that here in Australia that osteopaths are being trained in the area of pelvic health, which is really, really exciting because I truly believe with our holistic approach to the body that we make fantastic pelvic health practitioners so we have created this institute and as much as I wanted to train other osteopaths I also had a slightly um selfish reason for doing it I was booked out three months in advance and I really needed to train the girls up that worked in my clinic to take the load off and two or three, maybe a month and a half after I we finished our first lot of courses, I hurt my back and had to have nine, nine weeks off work and back surgery. And I I truly believe that the universe was waiting for me to train these other people up. And I'd been working so hard, I was burnt out. And then I just I had to have I had to have time to myself and and rest. So we've now we've we've created quite a few courses at level one pelvic floor course an advanced prolapse course and and um and we've also created a preparing the pregnant patient for birth and it's really exciting that soon people are going to start seeing osteopathic pelvic health clinics popping up all over australia for hopefully a more holistic approach to pelvic health
0: incredible so we've got the right people on the podcast basically yeah (laughs) you're welcome you
1: welcome now let it be known that I did something in this podcast history
2: oh well, I, I actually I sent a text I've message a, yeah you, you sent an Instagram message but I, I actually have a patient last year I said no earlier this year I said okay what does everyone want to hear from me this year like what do you want more of do you want um Instagram lies I've got some pretty epic reels do you want more reels And I put it all out there and said, what do people want? And someone actually wrote, I'd like to hear you on the great birth rebellion. (laughs) Oh, me too, sweet, huh? I don't I don't even I can't even remember who the person was, but if you're listening, thank you for starting that (laughs) new
0: 2023 goals done. (laughs) Exactly. But that
2: ripple effect, and it's here now. So thank you to whoever that was.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the right people. We hit half a million downloads last week. So and this is our last episode for the year. So you're taking us out. On a high. So thank you for being here. And before we get absolutely started into all of the nitty-gritties of pelvic health in pregnancy and all the things that you guys are going to offer. Many people will be coming to this podcast not really understanding what an osteopath can do. Yes, so could you talk talk us through in layman's terms? Because even although I use an osteopath, still aren't entirely clear on exactly what she does to me. I just go and accept it and carry on with my day can tell you tell us what osteopath is what do you do I can answer this
3: one um so an osteopath is a a holistic manual therapist I guess you could say so we have a couple philosophies that we um work with and that is that the body is a unit so you know we can't you know if someone comes in with shoulder pain or pelvic pain or incontinence where we've got to look at the whole body the structure and function are interrelated. So if you if you think about the pelvic floor, it's attached onto the pelvic bones. If the, the pelvis is twisted, it's going to impact the function of the pelvic floor. So, you know, that's one of the first things Kate and I realised when we did our first pelvic floor physio course, we like, oh, my gosh, they assess the function but they haven't paid any attention to the container that that pelvic floor is in. And that was the first thing we kind of thought, oh, okay that's something we can do different and maybe maybe better and the next principle is that that the body is able to self heal i mean i'm sure all of you have witnessed you know you cut yourself and you heal you know if the body is in a good alignment and balance then the body is able to self heal so as osteopaths, they're the three principles we kind of that guide our treatment. So it's not a cookie cutter type approach to treatment. We look at every person as an individual. Um, and I can remember when I first gradu- graduated, I was very like osteo, but very whole body, I would say. And as as my career has progressed I've become more whole person and I think as osteopaths most osteopaths are very good at connecting the big toe to the top of the head Um, and you know someone comes in with shoulder pain they're you know assessing the whole body but Kate and I are very passionate about considering the whole person because in anyone's um, experience whether they've got prolapse um, and they're really hyper vigilant you know if we're ignoring the fact that they're really scared to move um, and we're only assessing the function of the pelvic floor then we're we're missing out on a big part of their picture. Um, so that's so osteopathy. We trained for five years at university. Every osteopath you go to will possibly use completely different techniques to what the next person. And Kate and I have a very similar philosophy or the same philosophy in how we treat a patient, but we might actually do very different things with our hands. So it's more about the philosophy of what we do. um, And we learn a huge broad range of techniques, manual therapy techniques that we can, I guess, individualize to the patient's needs.
0: You're right about being different. Uh, I actually have two osteopaths, and I'll pick and choose which one I want to go to based on what I think I need um, which
1: is ideal right like actually you listening to your body and going with that's a real intuitive way of picking a care provider um, and I've been treated by both of you I have had the privilege of having both of your hands on my body and yeah very 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 different treatments and I think that's the tricky thing often people ask me for recommendations and I remember the first time I ever had osteopathy care by a person who's now my absolute bestie in life. And I remember walking away going, what the hell did I just pay her for? Like, I'm pretty sure she just like put her hands on me and I just handed over a hell of a lot of money for that. And then the next day I was like, my hips don't hurt anymore. Wow, maybe what she did was really awesome. And I remember seeing her and her being like, because I was like, okay, so when do I come back and see you? Because other allied health professionals, I'd seen outside of osteopathy were very much like, right, so I'll see you weekly for the next four weeks and second weekly. And she was like, well, just see how you go. And I was like, hang on a second. This is different.
0: Totally. I, and a, a quick story about my osteo, because she does craniosacral osteopathy. And the first time she treated me, I felt like, I, yeah, as you said, I literally lay there and she she did a little bit of poking around at the back of my head and neck. And I was like, oh, man everyone speaks so highly of her and I just but then I got off the bed and felt incredible and during my pregnancy I got a crush injury on my foot something fell quite heavy fell on it and I was kind of waiting for it to get better and I lived into her office one day for my usual pregnancy appointment she said oh have you hurt yourself I said oh yeah this really heavy thing fell on my foot I can't put any shoes on and I don't know I'm just hoping it kind of gets better but that's okay, just work on whatever you were going to work on. And um, she went, to, she went to my neck, then the right part of my lower back, and then down to my foot. And she, like, literally kind of tweaked my little toe, just a tiny, tiny little bit. And I felt this shooting from my little toe to the crush injury, to the spot on my back that she'd touched just prior. And I went, whoa. Oh. And she goes, yeah, okay, you're done. And I walked out of there pain-free on that foot that I'd lived. I was like, what the heck, woo-woo was that? Whereas my other one will like pull my legs and stretch this and stretch that and like both osteopaths. I get results from both of them. But so I think first take-home message is that every osteopath can be completely different. So don't give up if you hit one that you don't particularly appreciate. And
1: I do acknowledge that it can be expensive. To, to find people. And I also
0: acknowledge that a lot of people live in rural or remote areas and that can be really tricky. And you guys mentioned that you have a course specifically for practitioners that teaches them how to prepare a woman for birth. Yes. What can you talk us through that? Obviously not the course, but hang on. If we're still on, what is osteopathy? Are we still on? What is osteopathy? I feel
1: like Liz, are we still on? What is osteopathy? Because I was going to say, we haven't really explained what cranial sacral osteopathy is. We've kind of just mentioned it.
3: Really bloody hard to explain what that is. I'll probably leave that for another time. The important thing is that, that our philosophy is what guides us, but our techniques can look different. It might be that someone's, you know, has their hands on you and they're listening, you know, gently listening to your tissues and guiding, you know, listening to your tissues, or they might be directly working into your tissues. I think it's a really beautiful treatment to craniosacral or I would call cranial osteopathy because it's really about, you know, listening to the tissues and listening to the body, listening to the person's story and... Because with manual therapy, a lot of the techniques are really taking the tissues to where they don't want to go. And with cranial osteopathy, it's about listening to the tissues and allowing them to the intelligence of the body to find a balance. So it's very gentle. But most people, even if they're not feeling sensations, and some people will feel everything, they'll feel things releasing and changing. And they might even be feeling more than what I'm feeling um, at the time. And other people Will just feel relaxed. Like most people, at a bare minimum, feel like, oh, okay. Like my my mind's
0: switching off, and I feel like I'm going into like a deep meditation. That's been my experience of craniosacral osteopathy. Was is like I could feel like I remember one treatment. I felt just this energy like burst out from my heart, and like it was warm, and I had this huge breath in that just felt like my lungs filled beyond their usual capacity. And I, and this thing happened and I felt it in my body. And then my osteopath went, and we're done. I was like, what was that? She's like, just released. Okay. <laughs> and so yeah, I just think it's so, such an incredible modality and therapy. So let's talk, let's chat then about how do would women prepare themselves using oste using osteopathy for their pregnancy? and all birth. Well one of the first things we do lots of different things
3: like one of the big things is we use our hands and Kate will talk a bit about that in a minute but um one of the big things we talk about is is pain management or working with pain strategies and i think a big thing with pain is reframing their beliefs around pain. So we talk to our patients a lot about the neurophysiology of pain. So a lot of people believe that there's receptors in the cervix and the uterus, and they're pain receptors. And there's you know stretching of the cervix and the uterus is contracting, and that's telling the body that we're in pain. But actually, what's happening is there's nociceptors, and those nociceptors aren't pain detectors. They're detecting stretch, and they're detecting contraction within the uterus. You know, stretching through the um, the vagina and all the pelvic structures. Those, those nerves go into the spinal cord up to the brain and the brain takes that information and has a decision to make. It goes, is this a threat or is it not a threat? But it doesn't make it simply based on that information coming from the tissues. It's considering what are their beliefs about pain? Does this person believe that this pain is productive and meaningful or does this, this woman who's birthing, do they believe that this is the worst pain that they're going to feel in their entire life? You know, it's considering the support around them, or so they're about to give birth, and they 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 believe in their body and they believe in their capacity to birth a baby. So it takes all that information and it decides is this a threat? If the brain decides it's a threat, then it sends little a nerve back down and turns the dial up in the pain experience. If it decides that it's not a threat, then it sends a different nerve down and turns down. experience of pain. So when we think about pain like that, we can either turn it up or we can turn it down. So then it's about learning ways in which we can turn it down and turning it down really is creating as much safety as possible. So if we feel safe, then it doesn't matter how much input that's coming from your cervix that says I'm stretching, the brain is like, this is okay, we're safe. So it doesn't, you know, we're going to do this. My interest in understanding what happens in that moment in childbirth and pain, because I had a, a patient who came to me in the postnatal period, and she said to me, it felt like my pelvis was getting ripped apart. Literally, that wasn't happening, and literally that can't happen, but her brain took the information from the stretching of her pelvic structures, her cervix, her you know, the uterus contracting, It went up into her brain and her brain took all the other information that it could gather from its surrounding, its environment, belief systems, culture, and what it felt was that the pelvis was getting ripped apart. And of course, if that's what your brain feels is happening, that's a huge threat to the safety of your baby and yourself. And so it's going to ramp up that pain experience. So a lot of what we're doing in practice is chatting to our patients about pain, and this might be relevant to them in that moment because they might also have pelvic girdle pain. And so we can start to, you know, relate that their pain experience with pelvic girdle pain in that way as well so they can start to get a really embodied sense of, of that pain experience I kind of, we talk about being curious about pain. So I might just put a little bit of pressure onto their glute. And then we have a conversation about being really curious about how they're feeling. How is their body responding to pain? Are they tensing? Is it changing their breath? And what happens if they actually soften their breath? Does that change their pain experience? If they soften through their glutes and through their their jaw, does that change their pain experience? You know, I guess creating environment, treating them in such a way that they can have an embodied sense of actually, when I breathe, my pain, pain lessons, then they can take that into birth. So some of it's education, but some of it's, um, it's also using some of our skills within the actual manual therapy to educate and give more an embodied experience of that as well.
0: You know, women talk about when their baby's emerging and a lot of people talk about it as the ring of fire. Mm, yeah, and I, and I don't like the terminology because it it does have this this burning and fire and hot and pain kind of sensation, like it's bad. And women talk to me about, oh my gosh, what about when the when when the baby's coming? I'm like, it's just a stretch, mm. it's just stretching. And and a lot of women, you know, when the when the baby's coming down, you know, they look at you like, oh my gosh, what's happening? I'm like it's just a stretch. And mm. then a lot of women go, oh, it is just a stretch. It's not. There's no fire. There's no burning there's no it's just that's what stretching feels like yeah that's beautiful and yes. if they keep...
1: feel safe and they're in an environment that feels safe and their mirror neurons are being met with a holistic practitioner, like a midwife who's holding them in that power. Because the reality is for most women, that's not the environment that they're birthing in. And so the room around them doesn't then allow them to go, oh, this is just a stretch. But I think so much of what happens, especially that first time you give birth vaginally, is the body trying to, transcribe is this safe or not and so mm-hmm. as you beautifully touched on culturally and lang in terms of language that interpretation often isn't oh this is just a stretch
3: and it's interesting b because i know when i i did get the ring of fire and i can just remember feeling like i did not feel pain i just thought during labor I just thought I was constipated and need to do a poo. But when it came to actually stage two pushing, like I did feel the ring of fire and I can still remember, And it was almost eight years ago she was born on Christmas Day, so eight years ago Christmas Day, I can vividly remember my mind going, oh, my gosh, if I breathe, it doesn't hurt. As soon as I let the breath happen in my body, I didn't have the ring of fire.
1: Yeah, there's this beautiful um, quote in the book, Women's um, Bodies, Women's Wisdom. Oh, uh, yeah. And she talks about how her little girl um, cuts herself outside and she comes running in and the little, her daughter is like six or something at the time. And she said, mommy, it didn't hurt until I got scared. Mm, mm. And I just think that's such a powerful line for anything that we go through physiologically as women.
3: And I really love what you mentioned before, Mel, because I think when we think about the, you know, the. The nociceptors that were being stimulated to, from, I'm thinking more from a neurophysiology perspective, when she had the ring of fire and her brain was just interpreting that ring of fire, ring of fire. And then because of your words and your support in that moment, you could reframe her thinking in that moment. So then her brain could switch from intense ring of fire moment to actually it's a stretch.
0: It's just, yeah and to soften so and you know, soften
3: and with that softening there's letting go and there's opening for for baby to come
0: but yeah I guess the phrasing around that time and, and this might be helpful for other midwives if the woman is really you know they get really tense in their shoulders and then they get screechy like Ugh! like and the babies and you can like that is tightness and tension and that's fire whereas if you can say to a woman we're going to soften your shoulders soften mm bottom and we're gonna ha and it's just a stretch like that is a, a complete body change um to deal with that that sensation that's happening as the baby's crowning and I instinct instinctively um laughed during the emergence of my baby it just felt like absolute and utter bliss at that moment as she was fully coming out and I just giggled and it wasn't It was definitely not painful. Hmm. So, and that's the same thing that happens to every single woman's body when a baby comes out of their vagina, is that exact same physiological process. So, there's got to be a science to why some women can laugh their babies out almost, you know, painlessly, and others are experiencing a terrible, it's like a terrifying circumstance.
1: It's belief systems and and experiences Mm. in life and that's that beautiful mind-body connection because it's all well and good for one of us to say to somebody it's just a stretch and that will work beautifully for some and it won't for others and why that works is multifactorial. You know, is that person known? Are they in a safe environment? Does that person have a huge story around not being listened to because somebody saying something to them like it's just a stretch and not saying it in a supportive held way of I've got you. It is a stretch, and I've got you. As opposed to, it's just a stretch. You know that can lead to a hell of a lot of birth trauma for somebody because they, in that moment, will come and tell me, "Oh, they, the midwife just told me it was a stretch, and they didn't listen to me."
3: One thing that um, that Catherine and I do a lot in practice is, um, you know, teaching about perineal massage. And I just thought I'd mention this now because there's a lot of emphasis around perineal massage of getting a good stretch and, you know, there's so many good stats about, you know, like it lowers incidence of episiotomy, reduces the risk of third and fourth degree tears, better wound healing, less perineal pain, reduces um, the length of the second stage and 70% chance less likely to have anal incontinence. But when Catherine and I teach um, perineal massage, we teach it in a way which is about familiarizing yourself with that stretch so yes stretching can increase the flexibility within the tissues but if we can actually you know take the tissues to a stretch and observe you know how that how that stretch or the you know gentle stinging or burning sensation might feel in our bodies does it impact our breath does it create tension in our jaw and then how does our how does that pain experience change once again when we soften our breath or soften our jaw? And how we frame it to our patients is that, you know, like if feeling a stretch in your perineum is going to feel threatening for your brain, like if we can retrain ourselves to kind of feel a stretch and soften into the stretch and breathe and practice all of the different skills that we we might be teaching them, whether it's visualisations or, you know, gently, move, you know, tapping on their leg or humming or whatever it might be to really connect and, and feel that actually softness is happening. And we love to do it in a way that it's like we're not doing anything. We're just guiding our patients through the experience and their body, their tissues, they're making the change. But we just like that whole idea of going, right, you know, if they can get a sense of stretch prior to birth, so the first time they're feeling that stretch in their perineum and possibly the ring of fire, that you know, that might come up and create a threat. But if they've already experienced it and they've already had that embodied sense of actually, I could, I, I manage this, then it's less likely to create hopefully a threat. But obviously that threat's all determined by the the support around them and the environment and culture and all those things. It's not as simple as that, but it's one step.
0: I mean, it's important to it's important to point that out because. And I mean I do encourage my clients to do perineal massage but we've got to remember that perineal massage isn't about creating like space and stretchiness in the perineum and actually like a physical change where you somehow have changed the the structure of the outlet somehow by doing perineal massage like you said getting familiar with the sensation of the pressure and and t- and talking to your body about how this is this is okay you're safe you know and so when it's actually a baby coming you can you have practice that softness and um uh, it's almost like practicing relaxation techniques so that in when you are in a moment of stress you can tap into that practice and and settle settle yourself and it's the same with perineal massages that when you're feeling the baby come down and start to put pressure on your perineum your body goes well oh, hang on this is familiar we're safe our body can do this we've been here before just you know follow the steps yeah exactly so that yeah that was beautifully said thank you it's not the first time I've given that little talk (laughs) (laughs) so can you talk to us about how what, what can women do to prepare their pelvic floor then for birth we already kind of touched on perineal massage but is there something else we should be you know potentially tapping into
2: Yeah, there is. And we know that if someone does pelvic floor exercises, and when I say exercises, I don't mean just strengthening, but when someone does pelvic floor exercises throughout their pregnancy, that they will or can reduce the risk of urinary incontinence postpartum. They can reduce the risk of um, urinary incontinence later on in pregnancy. They reduce the risk of perineal tearing. They reduce... um, there's a reduction in first and second stage of labour. And if we can do anything to reduce the risk or reduce second stage of labour, then we're also reducing the risk of pelvic floor dysfunction because we also know that a longer stage two labour increases the risk of pelvic floor dysfunction.
1: In terms, in terms of... Because we've diagnosed stage two. I really want to say oh, that. Like yeah. really, if this is the only podcast you've listened to, go back and listen to the Pushing podcast because stage two of labour was created by medical experts so that we could put labour into a textbook and it's defined as when the cervix is 10 centimetres and when people push um, and, and a coach to push or really, really actively push. And, and I think one of the biggest things we need to Start. People need to understand is that the body has this incredible pushing stage called the fetal ejection reflex, and that doesn't last for
2: two hours. Um. Oh, and I, when we're talking about research, though, like because oh, I mean, I had the fetal ejection reflex with my second birth, and we talked to about our patients about you know waiting waiting for that urge or that body to actually start pushing and not to start pushing at ten centimeters dilated. But this is this is I'm just regurgitating research. Because on a, so yeah so when it comes to this research, it talks about you're just reducing the second stage of labour, and like be said for some people, that's I mean it is from when from ten centimeters dilated. The, the
1: research bird. is based on current maternity practice. Yes, yeah, um, and that's that's the thing that needs to be highlighted here is yeah, yeah that research is there 100, but it's there yeah. it's based on it's not based on physiology; it's based on how the system defines pushing.
2: Yeah. So there's so much benefit into doing pelvic floor exercises. And there's two streams out there. There's so many people out there talking about, oh, you've got to strengthen your pelvic floor, strengthen, strengthen, strengthen during pregnancy to reduce the risk of, of incontinence and prolapse and so forth. And then there's the also the um the people that have the train of thought, no, just relax, you've just got to relax your pelvic floor. And what we want to emphasize that it's about having a healthy pelvic floor and a healthy pelvic floor has good tone and it also has good distensibility. So for so what we're looking for is the ability to contract your pelvic floor, to let the pelvic floor and to also be able to bear down. And I'll give you a visualization for that. So if you can imagine you're in an elevator and you're on the ground floor. So when you contract your pelvic floor, you're going up to level one. When you let go, you're going back down to the ground floor. And when you bear down, you're going down into the basement. And so they're some really important functions of the pelvic floor. And when it comes to birth, the pelvic floor has two main roles. It has an active role and it has a passive role. So the active role of the pelvic floor, the pelvic floor sits at the level of the ischial spine. So, when the baby's head comes down and it reaches the mid pelvis, the level of the ischial spine, and it contacts the pelvic floor, the first thing that it does in its active role is it flexes the baby's head. So, for everyone out there, if you're at home or you're walking and you're not driving, I want you to flex your head all the way down to your chest. So, flex it all the way down and then touch the top of your head. And you can feel that when you touch the top of your head, it's quite small. Okay, now look straight ahead and now touch the top of your head. That's quite big. So the first role of the pelvic floor is is to flex the baby's head. And by doing that, it means this smallest part of the baby's head is presenting down into the pelvis. And I'm pretty sure I can speak for everyone out there when I say we all want the smallest part of the baby's head to present down into our pelvic, into our um, vagina. So I think that's universal. So the next thing it does in its active role is it it helps with that internal rotation of the baby's head. So it starts to help the baby navigate a better position to keep descending down into the pelvis. Then it has a passive role and it needs to be able to get the hell out of the way. And that's the passive role. So that's why it is really important that when we're assessing someone's function in the pelvic floor, they have good tone because without the good tone and the strengthening of the pelvic floor throughout the pregnancy, and without that good tone, we do not get the flexion of the baby's head and it's harder for the baby, uh, the pelvic floor to help and assist with the rotation of the baby at that mid-pelvis level. Then if it doesn't have good distensibility, then it can't get the hell out of the way and help allow that baby to descend down into the vagina and and out through the birth canal. So when we're also looking at um, at someone who is pregnant, it's really important to assess that they can bear down. And 18% of new mothers who have never given birth before, instead of bearing down, they they co-contract their pelvic floor. So instead of bearing down and creating length and showing distensibility, they actually contract their pelvic floor. So part of what we do is training and and treating and retraining and educating our patients on how to be able to bear down properly because that just shows that ability to fully distend the pelvic floor. This particular research states that if someone co-contracts and so it shortens through that perineal region instead of lengthens their perineal with a bear down, then they are more likely, again, to have a second stage of labour. And again, longer second stage of labour, amongst all other factors as well, is a predisposing risk factor. So what we're working on doing is helping to reduce the risk of someone having a pelvic floor dysfunction by working on all these aspects before they give birth locally on the actual at the level of the pelvic floor we know also that the pelvic floor is an emotional muscle and you can't treat the pelvic floor without thinking of that whole person and all their fear and emotions that might be going on in that moment for that patient and I know B loves this research as well and so does Liz but and I love talking about this research and there's this research about a group of women who have vaginismus And they believed that vaginismus was a sexual dysfunction. And vaginismus, for those that don't know what vaginismus is, is a condition or a um, chronic pain syndrome where the pelvic floor muscle automatically engages with any form of vaginal penetration, finger, dildo, speculum, tampon, doesn't matter what it is. It can be one of those things, all of those things, or a combination And it can be quite a painful um, condition and it's the leading cause of unconsummated marriages in the world. So they had this group of women and they showed them four movies, a sexually erotic movie, a sexually threatening movie. They showed them just a scary movie and a neutral movie. movie. And I like to think that one was Friends because I love Friends. And then they had a group of women who did not have vaginismus. What they were not expecting from this study was that, Women contract their pelvic floor and it has nothing to do with sex. It has everything to do with fear, anxiety, that defense mechanism that gets us to contract the pelvic floor. And they were not expecting that from the study. But what they really weren't expecting was the group of women that were the control did the exact same thing. And that's when they really started to realize and fully understand the pelvic floor and is that it is a defense, has a defense mechanism about it. So that comes back to birth when someone is scared and they're feeling fearful in birth and they, it's a time in which their pelvic floor needs to be able to let go and to relax and lengthen. But if they're fear, feeling that fear in that moment, then it makes it very difficult. And so when it comes to treatment as well, if that person is experiencing some previous trauma from birth, it is about addressing that and sending them off to be, to um, have birth treatment Debriefs if they've debriefs if they've had previous um, sexual physical trauma it's them dealing with that if it's stress related if it's relationship related you have to deal with that because if you're just doing manual release to the pelvic floor whether it's internal techniques or external techniques then that tension will come back again and as osteopaths we also don't just go okay well, let's just treat the pelvic floor we also recognise that it is part it is influenced by Our stress, like I just mentioned, but it is also part of this whole system. It's part of a kinetic chain. It's part of a fascial network that goes from the foot up through the pelvic floor. It comes, the same piece of fascia goes through the diaphragm, through the mediastin and and, and inserts back up and, and, and inserts into the masseters, and that's where we sort of go, yeah, of course if someone's clenching their jaw, they're going to be clenching their vagina and clenching their pelvic floor as well. So it's looking at everything within that kinetic chain to also make sure that we're looking at that whole person and not just blaming everything on the pelvic floor if the pelvic floor is tight.
0: And Kate, when you were talking about that study uh, and they showed them the scary movies, uh, did they then assess their pelvic floor after, during, how did they... Oh, sorry. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. So,
2: with um, I got so excited about the study, I love it. So, what they realized was they, they actually the pelvic floor didn't contract at all with any of the sexual the sexual movie. It did with the sexually threatening and the scary movie. So that's when they realized it didn't have anything to do with um, it didn't have anything to do with um, sex. It had to do with fear, anxiety, defense mechanisms, those kinds of things. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess going back to the pelvic floor though, like so that's locally what we do for the pelvic floor and also looking globally. But in terms of giving our patients exercises and breathing um, breathing exercises, because we create length in our pelvic floor through doing a nice, relaxed breath. So we definitely bring in that breath. And there's two ways you can um, increase length yourself at home with your pelvic floor. You can use movement yourself. So things like cat-cow, um, happy baby they create space and length in that pelvic region and then we can use our breath as well so our breath can we can use our breath to create space or we can use our movement to help create space as well so we're looking at the whole person and the whole body and the pelvic floor as well as you know home exercises to start creating space as well and then in
1: terms of, because we talked about last week, maternal alignment, the yeah. big kind of message we gave was around creating space. Yeah. Um, and so not just at that pelvic floor level, but
2: talk us through what osteopathy yeah. can do in terms of alignment. So I guess most people think of just the pelvis when it comes to alignment. So I'll explain that because I think it's, the baby has to navigate the pelvis. So I think that that part of it is really important. And then I'll explain how we look at it with the whole. So the pelvis, and a lot of people look at the pelvis and think of it as this rigid structure, but it's not. Even when we're not pregnant, there is little movements that occur throughout the joints in the pelvis. Then we add in pregnancy and that concoction of amazing hormones that happens when we're pregnant. And all of a sudden, this structure is able to flex, extend, rotate all those bones of the pelvis are able to flex, extend, rotate around each other as the baby descends so the baby comes down into the pelvis and the bones are able to move and adapt to this baby descending into the pelvis and it's innate, and we don't have to think about it. Okay. So that's the first part. The baby's coming down, and the pelvis is helping the baby navigate this whole region. So if you think, okay, someone who is a ballerina, for example, and they have spent years externally rotating their hips. So, external rotation, if you straighten your legs right now and you point your toes away from your midline, away from your body. So, if you do that, That is external rotation. So just such a typical ballet dancer's position. When we are in this position, we are closing the pelvic outlet. So if you have a patient that naturally is in external rotation, they're naturally going to close their pelvic outlet. And when it comes to opening that, they're going to struggle and they are the sort of people that really struggle to internally rotate their hips. So even if you say to them, okay, I want you to put your knees in and your feet out, they're still going to struggle doing that because they have lack of flexibility into that movement. So it is about looking at those regions and looking at the hips and the pelvis. But we also know that the pelvis is part of a kinetic chain, as I mentioned before. So the foot, if the foot can't pronate properly, then that causes um, it needs to be able to pronate to internally rotate. So if it can't internally rotate, again, you're not going to open the pelvic outlet. So looking at that foot and the fascial chain that comes up through there. So that's where we can look at that part of the alignment in terms of the body and know that it is influenced by the kinetic chain above and below. Inside the pelvis, we don't just have this bony pelvis. We also have muscles within that region. So the three main muscles that the pel that um, the body needs to navigate, or the baby, sorry, needs to navigate when it comes into the pelvis, the way that we look at it, is pelvic floor, and we've already discussed that. We know that it has to get out of the way and so forth. But the two within the pelvis that we'll talk about today, one is the psoas iliacus complex. And I know B talks about this one as well, and she talks about it more as on an emotional level, and I love that, B. didn't know that about the muscle. But if you look at a picture of it, it goes from the spine and it comes down into the inside part of the pelvis into the front of the um, thigh, the thigh bone. When you look at it, it looks like a funnel. So the psoas muscle actually helps to guide the baby down into the pelvis. So it's really important that we start to assess what the psoas and the iliacus is doing because it helps to guide the baby down. And, again, if it's tight, it's going to create less space for that baby to come down. And ultimately that that baby is choosing to go where it wants to go, and if there is more space, it's going to give it more availability and more room to make a better choice. So there's psoas coming down. Another really important muscle within that region is piriformis. Now, piriformis is also an external rotator. And it's quite common. A lot of people have piriformis syndrome or piriformis issues and have that deep glute pain. And if they're constantly contracting their glutes and tucking their bum under, they're likely to also be engaging their piriformis. But piriformis is also an external rotator of the hip. So if it's tight, then it's not only giving the baby less space to navigate its way through the pelvis. If a tight muscle that functions and causes external rotation of the hip is tight, then it holds it in an external rotation. And again, if a hip is in external rotation, we can't internally rotate. We can't create that nice space through the pelvic outlet. So it's really important to be assessing these muscles One of the ligaments that's most, uh, one of the most important ligaments that we need to assess is the sacro tuberous ligament. And the sacro tuberous, from its name, it goes from the sacrum to the ischial tuberosity. And again, with tension in this... Which is the sit bone for those... Oh, yeah, so, Yes. (laughs) The ischial tuberosity is that sit bone. Um, so, this ligament, uh, uh, ligament goes from the sacrum to the sit bone. And again, without this, with this muscle, oh, sorry, um, ligament having lots of tension in it, there is this inability of the sacrum to be able to flex and open up the pelvic outlet. So, we're looking at all those different regions, as well as, as I mentioned before, that whole kinetic chain. And we need that pelvis to have balance and freedom of movement to create space. The other thing as osteopaths that we also look at is the uterus and the fascia that attaches to the uterus. And I'm sure I can speak on behalf of everyone here and say, what an incredible organ the uterus is. I mean, it spends nine months protecting and housing our little, these amazing um, babies that we have. And then through hormonal changes, it is able to help push this baby out into into the world. And the position and the ability of the uterus to contract efficiently is influenced by these guide ropes or or ligaments that attach onto onto the uterus, and they all attach onto the pelvis. So again, they're then influenced by the pelvis as well.
1: Which so we is have, a stretch that a lot, of, and the pain or yeah. pain that people feel during pregnancy, and people are like, oh, yeah. it's just ligament pain. Yeah, because they're tight and and they're and you're feeling that stretch or perhaps, yeah, again, we're feeling it as pain or not. And I really want to highlight that piriformis pain. I had that in my second pregnancy. Mm. So it goes mismanaged and mistreated, misdiagnosed so often. If you've got a deep glute pain, it, like it, it's 100% the top. And right
2: the thing is the easiest way to get to piriformis is via the vagina. To get to it through the glutes, you have to get through so many other muscles, but vaginally it's actually, as long as you've got long fingers, it's actually really easy to get to. Easy to get to. And
1: yeah. it's, I reckon 9 out of 10 people that I do internal release work on, that periformis is like so bulky and it's huge in terms of prolapse too when you think about that pressure equals force divided by area. So if it's taking up area, you now got less um, less area, more pressure in that space as well
0: when yeah. you were talking about like external rotation i mean you know we we've spoken before about uh, during the pushing phase and during labor um knees in ankles out would create that internal internal rotation which explains why that technique works
2: yeah yeah 100% that's that and that's why We quite regularly, you know, women are on all fours and they put their feet out, and whether it's intuitively or whether they're, you know, they've got a um, a holistic midwife or care provider that's actually saying, okay, let's create a bit more space compared to that lying flat on your back where the sacrum can't move, it can't flex, and yeah, put your feet together and drop your knees out, which completely closes that inlet. But it does make it easier for someone to do an internal assessment on, you know. That's
1: but it. you've got to have the capacity to internally rotate. In which it doesn't
2: direction. have to be too much, though. It actually only has to be a, a finite but amount.
1: Yeah. Your body's used to external rotation. Yeah. And struggle to internally rotate, and we see this a lot. I see it a lot in super, super, super fit women. Yeah. Um, that end up with obstruction because there's not the space or the room in their bodies because our fitness industry is very much geared towards strength rather
2: than balance in the body. Back to um, to that other topic I was just talking about, like so you've got, you know how B you were saying a lot of people can get that pain in ligaments Um, and, you know, a lot of people have heard of round ligament pain. The round ligament shouldn't even be called a ligament. It should just be called a muscle because it is predominantly smooth muscle. So it's not a skeletal muscle. We can't send a nerve down there to move it, but that's why it can get so sore too. But that's because it is a muscle, so it can get really tight through there but it needs to be a muscle because it needs to be able to expand with a growing baby and it also needs to be able to contract back down so ligaments like the broad ligament the round ligament the uterosacral ligament the cardinal ligaments they all tension in any of those structures can influence the way in which the uterus is sitting they are all conduits as well. They basically all have or travel with nerves, arteries, blood flow, lymphatics. So if you've got strain and tension in in that particular ligament, in that particular ligament, you can then be influencing the nerve supply to the uterus. You can be um, influencing the lymphatic drainage of that area. So the uterosacral ligament, for example, and it's a silly name for it because only I think 7 or 8% of the utero ligaments actually attach onto the sacrum. So they attach attach onto the coccygeus, they attach, some of them even attach onto the um, ischial spine. So you can imagine what that would do for someone creating space through that region. And that's because we're very individual in our pelvises, yeah. aren't we? Yeah. I think yeah. that's something that
1: midwives and doctors and and the modern society really fails to recognize is that each pelvis is so uniquely different whereas ours are very uniquely wired um Mm -hmm. and so that that can be tricky right because that well i mean it really forces you to treat the person as an individual when you're providing care seeing yeah, what actually absolutely. happens in their body mm. but it can be hard in the moment in terms of birth when we don't have this because we don't have this this isn't training that we get as midwives and I know doctors aren't getting that either um, and so to take all of this into consideration is really what we need to be doing in birth as well because often the, that pain that we can see or the issues that we see in pregnancy can really play out in in labor um, and birth as well like smooth muscle pain, for example.
2: Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So the ligament. ligament, if it's tight, it actually increases the tension on that lower uterine segment. And that's one of the first things that this baby has to descend down through is that lower uterine segment to actually make its way down through the birth canal. So the uterosacral ligament also has the um, parasympathetic nerve supply to the uterus, to the vagina, to the bladder, and the urethra running through it. And as I mentioned, most of these ligaments are all conduits. They, ha- they have these nerve supply and arteries and so forth running through it or next to it. So if you've got tension, you, especially in the utero ligament, we are going to affect the parasympathetic nerve supply to the uterus, which is huge for someone who's in labour because we want them to be in a state, a parasympathetic state. As osteopaths, we are assessing not just internally either. We can treat these ligaments and this fascia externally as well. And I guess as a general rule, we're just wanting to find balance, balance in the pelvis, balance in the urine ligaments, balance throughout the whole body really so that this pelvis and these muscles can do their job. They can adapt. They can accommodate this baby coming down and give as much space In this pelvic region, so that this baby can have the easiest
0: trip down through the birth canal and out into this world. So, I guess not everybody has the privilege of having an osteopath who's going to be able to know all of these things and do this kind of work. How can we prevent, how can pregnant women prevent getting to a point where their internal and pelvic anatomy is sort of going to get in the way of their birthing process? day-to-day are there things that we can do for ourselves that could reduce the chance of these kind of pathological things going on Bee's doing a dance I'm sure she has an answer
3: I'm, I'm like do you mean as in like like if we had a patient or someone out there who doesn't have access to having an internal check or see an osteopath what they could do
0: well essentially I mean Hopefully we're not all living in a pathological pelvic floor state where Mm -hmm. we right. all I actually really need is a proper good adjustment and some, you know, there must be things that we can do daily for our bodies that are going to stop these things from becoming a hindrance during pregnancy and birth.
3: Yeah, I think movement and breath, moving your body in a really safe way. Um, I love doing mindful movement, so connecting to your breath, connecting to your pelvic floor while you're moving. So there's lots of different, you know, I'm I've done my yoga teacher training. So I incorporate yoga a lot into my um my practice and and my patients, with my patients. But yeah, so doing there's lots of different stretches, mobility exercises, breathing visualizations where you can j- just learn to create, you know, length and connect to that area and create mobility and things like that.
2: Beast program probably would be this a program. good program.
1: I did not pay them to say that. <laughs> yes, you
2: did. Yes, you did. <laughs> she says. Voice. <laughs> I have a lot of patients that do bees program and the one thing that I can say is that when a patient has done bees program they have a better 360 degree contraction they have a better ability to let go of their pelvic floor and they have just more body awareness from what they've been learning on B's program so it 100% makes my job a hell of a lot easier if they've done a program like bees when they're, before that they're, they've come in and we talk about the nervous system and calming the nervous system down and every single one of those techniques that Liz was talking about then for pain with the pain science talking about pain science and calming the nervous system down and to help with pain all of those things also help to create length through the pelvic floor so if you right now like even do a low tone mmm, like that, you can feel your pelvic floor drop, and that's so not just
1: the pelvic floor. It's, it's a not just the pelvic floor. All. It's it's yeah. You know when when the thought is, I always say when the mind is tense, the body is tense. And so, using if the if one part of you is relaxing from that technique, the rest of you will because you're you're moving out of your defense mechanisms that need to fight or flight right? So you think about that's why your body's doing that. That's why your body is holding tension because it's in a stress response and a stress response needs a defensive mechanism, which requires the body to either fight or or flight. That's why we see that tension in the body. So it's not just the pelvic floor that's able to relax. It's things like the psoas and the piriformis and all the beautiful muscles that, that we've talked about. They all go, oh, and now the baby's got more space. I think one of the biggest questions I get asked is, when can I see someone postnatally? Yep. I okay. need to wake. So we've created this six-week check, which really inhibits our ability to heal.
2: There's some new. Home. There's new research out there that says that the new research suggests that you have to you reduce the risk of infection. Wait the six weeks for an internal, but you can come in earlier and start learning how to connect to your breath how you engage through your core, how you move and pick your baby up off the ground correctly, how you get out of a chair correctly. If you're having issues with bowel movements, being taught how to get into a good pooping posture and how you breathe through having a bowel movement and looking at improving your bladder and bowel health. So research now says that coming in earlier for that kind of thing and connecting in with your breath and pelvic floor and waiting for the six weeks for the actual internal assessment. But in terms of body work in yeah. the first oh, six weeks, the day, I, I like had. That's what I was talking about. Oh, I was the like, body on, where are you oh, going? No, oh, no, I'm no, sorry. I'll use me as an example. I, after giving birth to my second, I, and it was very quick labor. Um, and I did have the fetal ejection reflex and I wasn't expecting it to come. And then all of a sudden I was i was making a sound that came out of my mouth that I'd never heard before and I sounded just like a cow. Um, it was so low and she came out. I reckon there was probably four pushes and she was out. She was 4.2 kilos. But I obviously moved my coccyx and did something to my coccyx because after I give, gave birth, I could not sit I couldn't sit to breastfeed so I had to lie down and I am very blessed to just like be who had you know one of her best friends at her birth. Liz wasn't at my birth but she was there soon after at my birth and I just looked at Liz and I said my coccyx I cannot sit and she gave me a cranial treatment. So she put her hands under my body she gave me a cranial treatment and i was able to sit and I had no issues at all with my coccyx after that so in terms of musculoskeletal issues you can see your osteopath the day you've gave, and it doesn't have to be an osteopath it can be any body worker that you're um Of your choosing but you can see someone the day as long as they're respectful of the tissues and they understand the whole process of birth and how sensitive things are going to be but in terms of having a six-week postnatal checkup and that's that kind of thing that's six weeks but musculoskeletal stuff can be as early as you wish And it really is
1: about allowing that space for, depending on the um, practice here, but like I know for cranial sacral, it's just about giving that beautiful space and respect to postpartum healing and allowing that body to come into balance because pregnancy really does throw us out of alignment. And so postpartum is this time and birth can, but really pregnancy. And so postpartum is this time of realignment. And then you think about we're out of alignment and then what are we doing? We're lifting heavy things. We're doing or the housework or perhaps climbing stairs in our house or carrying um, bigger baby, our older babies, and there isn't that space for the body to heal at all. And so that's often I really see so many of our issues actually happen in postpartum around that real two to six week period, because often that's when partners go back to work, if they've been able to have time off. And so we're doing a lot more with our bodies, but there's been no healing. So if you know that that's going to be part of your postpartum, really that postpartum planning, and we offer that service now to be able to book with us to do a postpartum planning session is super important of what is my body going to need.
2: And what Liz even mentioned earlier, structure uh, structure and function are interrelated. So if you've, your pelvis is stuck in this position where the outlet is still completely open, then that's putting on stretch your pelvic floor completely. So it's about finding that balance again and bringing that pelvis into better balance and better alignment so the pelvic floor is in the position in which It works most efficiently because then that helps to support all of what it does in everyday life. It's healing. It's support, it's
0: healing. Yeah. Super interesting. I feel like we're going to need a whole other postpartum episode. I don't know that we can cover postpartum in the two minutes.
1: I think it's just really important to say if you're experiencing an issue, it's not normal. Normal says issues are meant are meant to be put up with and we can't do anything about them. So any pain or changes in the function of what your pelvic space does, so wean, pooing, intimacy, if any of that feels different or if you're experiencing pain, none of that is normal, common, yes, normal, no. Can you do something about it? Yes, our bodies are incredibly amazing at healing, it's super important to be supported in that process, though, and, and I mean, osteopathy is always my top pick, but it's about finding something that works for you as well and that you can have access to. I think that's the number one thing we probably all want to say around postpartum. Would you agree, Kate and Liz?
2: Yeah, especially because, there's, you know, we've been training osteopaths up in pelvic health, but there's still not even, not every major city in Australia has one. Um, and it might be hard getting into an appointment and they might be on the other side of Sydney or Melbourne to where you are. So it's finding a good physio or whoever in your local area to assist with, you know, your concerns.
1: Yeah. I've got a directory on my website, so I need it needs a lot of love and updating. Um, if you're interested in being on it, let me know. But um, that's there for people to look at as well. Make sure I get all your practitioners that are trained on there.
0: And we'll put Kate and Liz's details in the show notes below this episode, and all their details will come out. If you're on the mailing list, you'll get an email with all the details from this episode. And I no doubt we will have you guys back to do a really thorough look at postpartum stuff. And one final thing I want to just share, guys the Convergence of Rebellious Midwives on a completely different topic Convergence of Rebellious Midwives Conference It's happening next year in August. Tickets are on sale. If you're on the mailing list, you'll have all the information already. Public sales open in a few weeks. But there's already 130 tickets sold, and the work, the breach workshops are pretty much sold out now. And B, there's going to be 75 people already coming to the dinner slash biggest party of the year. We can fit a few more. We can fit more. But anyway, if you're hearing this episode, MelanieThemidwife.com is where you find tickets for that event. And Liz and Kate, we will 100% be having you back. I have not asked your consent or permission to have you back on again, but I'm assuming you had such a great time today that you'll be back. Oh, we'd love to. Like, I guess for Liz and I,
2: getting into pelvic health and being osteopaths and is big sea of physios it's so nice to have people like you and B supporting the fact that there's osteopaths out there trying to make you know have their own ripple effect on all these women out there who have pelvic floor issues and preparing for birth and so forth so thanks for having us
1: thanks for saying yes thanks for being here legends and we will see you next
2: year yeah
0: thank thank you. you happy new year everybody for if you're listening to this and it's new year's We'll see you all in 2024. That's been this year of the Great Birth Rebellion.
1: Bye. Thanks, Legends. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at MelanieTheMidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at quorumfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah!
2: Yeah! (laughs) All right.